Once again, it's, uh, it's a real privilege to, to be here. Uh, and before we dig into God's Word, let's uh, ask for His blessing upon our meditation on this Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that what we just read together is uh, so much more than ink on paper or light reflected on a screen. But Lord, that it is a vital part of your eternal, infallible word to us. And so, Lord, we open it this morning with the expectation that you yourself will speak to us from it. And we pray, Lord, that you will enlighten our hearts and our minds, and in some ways, above all, that you will also give us the obedience needed to respond appropriately to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It would be really good if you could keep your Bibles open uh, at 2 Corinthians 4, as I will be coming back to the text again and again. I want you for a moment to just in your um, own imagination, go to a scene that all of us must have seen countless times in, in so many movies uh, or in TV series kind of scene where some kids go up into an attic, cobwebs and dust all around, and somehow coming to a chest or some drawers, getting out a yellow piece of paper with a map. And in the middle of that map, there's an X. X marks the spot. I think we have Robert Louis Stevenson from Treasure Island to, to thank for, for, for this little image. And and I don't really speak pirate, but you can sort of uh, think of the, the thought running through their minds at that moment. Here be treasure, mateys. Um, I think that was quite good, actually. <laughs> Here be treasure. And that's sort of how I want to introduce this sermon. There is indeed a uh, magnificent treasure hidden in this passage. But let's leave that thought for a moment as uh, we just dig into some of the background to what is happening here, and that will help us to understand the treasure a little bit better. Um, time does not permit me to really go into all the details of Paul's dealings uh, with the Corinthians. Suffice it to say that this was not at all without difficulties. It seems that Paul constantly had to deal with relational difficulties, moral lapses, and mixed-up doctrines so that he constantly had to come back to the Corinthian church with guidance, with wise words, and sometimes even with warning. To top it all off, it is clear that there were at least some people in the congregation who did not want to accept Paul's authority, and therefore, by extension, also his message. After a visit to try and address some of these issues, Paul had to write to them a severe letter. We see that referred to in chapter 2, verse 4. It's also sometimes called the letter of tears, as it caused Paul a lot of tears to write it, and probably also caused some tears, at least, among those who received it. Paul must have been worried about how this letter would be received. And great was his relief, therefore, when he received a positive report back from the congregation. They heeded his words, 
and at least some people repented. And this really is the cause for the writing of what we now know as Second Corinthians. Paul wrote to the Corinthians to express his thanks, uh, to reflect something of his relief uh, related to their reaction. But he also speaks at length on the nature of the gospel and the nature of Christian ministry. Chapters 2, verse uh, 2 to 7 is often called Paul's Great Digression. And what we mean by this is Paul wrote this letter to say thank you, but then for five chapters he ranges across a wide range of topics, uh, most specifically dealing, as I said, with the nature of the gospel and the nature of ministry. And we can be really thankful that Paul made this digression because in the process we learn so much about how to live for God and what our own priorities in life should be. I'm obviously not going to be able to focus on all of chapters 2 to 7, uh, but at least we'll be able to dip into chapter 4. And I think as we read through this chapter, a few things shine through very, very clearly. And here we come, firstly, to the treasure. Paul wants to emphasize very strongly that the gospel is precious. In Geelong, where I live, uh, in the, the local museum, there was at, at one stage a little section on the, uh, the history of our city, uh, specifically during the, the gold rush era in the, the early 1850s. Um, and the recurring theme throughout this entire exhibition was that it nearly killed Geelong. Everybody, teachers, policemen, uh, magistrates, farmers, any, everybody who was everybody left and went to Ballarat and Bendigo to try their hand at finding gold. And in so many ways, it emptied the city, and, and probably much the same happened in Melbourne back then. Everything else almost collapsed. Why? There was treasure about. There was gold to be found, and people acted in many ways quite irrationally, which is, I suppose, why we call it gold fever. It is almost like a sickness that takes hold of you. And here we have a treasure, but a treasure that is not responded to with any rational fever, but with faith. Paul writes in verse 6, For God, he said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure. We are recipients of this treasure. It has been given to us freely by God. We now, in many ways, are beneficiaries of this treasure. And in striking this theme, Paul is obviously linking up with some of the, the words of Jesus, who also quite often compared the gospel, his message, with treasure. In one of Jesus' parables, parables he, he, he teaches uh, about a man who finds a treasure in a field and then goes and sells everything that he has to obtain that field and hence this treasure. And the most important thing about this metaphor is just this. This is something 
that is worth more than we can ever begin to imagine. We may be very used to hearing the gospel. We may be very, very familiar with the contents of the gospel, but sadly, we so often forget how incredibly valuable this is. One day, I was in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. I, I used to work in the Middle East uh, as a missionary, and I, I spent some, some time in Egypt, and, and often I would just pop into the, the Egyptian Museum. And at the heart of the museum is an exhibition uh, that deals with the, the treasure of Tutankhamun, the, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh. And you've probably all seen the item at the center of this exhibition in, um, in photographs and on television. It is his death mask, a solid gold mask uh, with sort of blue stripes on it that was placed on the corpse in burial. Now, think for a moment what that thing must be worth. Uh, they've, they've tried to um, include it in overseas exhibitions, uh, but they've never done so because no insurer will touch it. <laughs> They're basically saying this item is, is beyond uh, you know, reckoning in terms of what it is worth. So one day I went into the room where this is on display, and there were people all about, uh, many of them traveling, I suppose, from all over the world to, to visit Egypt and among uh, the activities of their visit also to come in there and gaze at this death mark. And as you can imagine, there were oohs and ahs all around. People were just sort of uh, in awe at, at what they're seeing because in that context, it is not only the mask, but also all sorts of other things, solid gold objects as far as the eye can see. And you can understand the, um, the reaction. This is indeed a very, very valuable item. But then the next moment, my eye caught the cleaning lady who has probably been in this room, I don't know, hundreds of times every day with her duster. And she's cleaning away. Uh, and, and can you imagine the, uh, the look on her face? Utter boredom. Because she's done this so many times. She is so used to be in the presence of this incalculable treasure that it has no discernible effect on her whatsoever anymore. And as I looked at that, I sort of reflected on my own life and my own response to the gospel. Don't we do the same? Haven't we heard this so many times that it is just, in some ways, old news? There's a saying that says, familiarity breeds contempt. Hopefully no one here despises the gospel. Far be it from us. But familiarity can also breed indifference. Been, been there, done that. And I think Paul's use of the image of a treasure really should yank us away from that, should bring us to the place where we once again fully and honestly consider what it means to be a believer in the gospel, being plucked from darkness and placed in the kingdom of the sun. We don't deserve this treasure. We received it by grace through faith. But we should not ever regard it as ordinary or mundane. It is the most precious message that there ever has been. 
So how do we avoid this? Well, Paul uh, obviously expounds on this at great length in the rest of 1 Corinthians. But the one thing that he says that, that strikes me is that this gospel must always be central in who we are as believers and as churches. We do not preach ourselves, he says, but Christ preaches to us. It is about him. And therefore, in our worship, in our prayers, in our meditation on the word, the focus should constantly be on the awe and majesty of the one who entrusted us with this treasure. So the first point, the gospel is very, very precious. May we never forget this. I read verse 6 a moment ago, but I only read the first part of a key statement. I said, we have this treasure. The point, obviously, is it is indeed a treasure. But Paul then goes on by saying, in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure. So there's the one image, this gleaming, precious thing in jars of clay. I think as modern people, we, we may miss the point here a little bit. Because pottery in our society is usually pretty special. You know, we would go somewhere and maybe uh, see a potter working his wheel and, and pay a lot of money for, for what is being produced. But that was not the intention of, of what Paul was writing here. Paul is essentially saying this treasure is being stored in an everyday object. He meant pottery in the sense of what you would use to go and draw water, uh, what you would use every day without necessarily thinking about it. So let, let me try and attempt a translation. We have this treasure in a McDonald's paper cup. Okay? The idea of something expendable, something that we don't really think about, that we use and then almost discard. A treasure in a styrofoam cup. And, and it jars this kind of image, doesn't it? This very precious thing in a, a not-so-precious holder. And I think this really is the, the, the powerful image that Paul is trying to bring across. The gospel can and must and should never be a cause for personal pride. I am not to go about the world saying, I have the gospel. Am I not great? Instead, I'm supposed to point away from myself to the treasure within me. This brings us to, I think, a, a rather countercultural note. And I'm going to make a statement now that I think for many people in Western society would just grate. And it's simply this. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are not as strong as we think we are. Everybody from psychologists to personal trainers and every, everybody in between will tell us, you can do it. Just apply yourself. You can do it. But the gospel is probably at its most countercultural at this point as it tells us it is not about us. It is not about e our efforts. It is not about what we think we can achieve as if it is possible to get ourselves by the hair and pull us up to God. God did everything. He 
who is the one that strengthens? Who is the one that provides the power? But the gospel is not only at its most countercultural at this point, it is also at its most realistic. Because I think if we sit down and come to a point of honesty with ourselves, we have to admit, no, we can't. We are not as strong as we think we are. We need help. <laughs> we need the help of a loving Savior. And therefore, when we receive the salvation of the Savior, it is not for us to be proud and boastful about it. It is not for us to go around the world saying, look at what we can do. It is about pointing away from ourselves, pointing to our marvelous and glorious Savior. And Paul is saying this in the context of some people who were saying, we are, in essence, super apostles. <laughs> we are able to turn the world around in our, in our own power. He's saying, wait a minute. Regards of clay. Keep away from pride and overconfidence and be in a place of total dependence on God. So first, major point. The gospel is very, very precious. Secondly, those who respond to the gospel in through God's grace are but jars of clay. The real truth and power is in the gospel itself. Thirdly, holding on to this truth can help us to persevere in spite of uh, circumstances. I, I once saw a little poster that was probably very much tongue-in-cheek. Uh, it said the following, missing dog, lost three-legged fox terrier. He has only one eye, half of his left ear is missing, and he answers to the name Lucky. Um, <laughs> so, so Lucky, obviously, wasn't all that lucky. I'm sure this would have raised the wry smile with Paul. Because he was able to look at all the troubles that he suffered and still call himself not lucky in this instance, but blessed. Blessed by God. He goes through a list of all of the things that, that has happened to him. Uh, all of the physical troubles, the, the pain, the sickness, the illness, the ending every sermon almost of a riot, <laughs> uh, but still able to say, therefore, since through God's mercy, we do not have this ministry, we do not lose heart. God has given us this mercy, and that keeps us going. We do not lose heart. Paul isn't denying all of the troubles. He's not, you know, saying these things aren't happening or these things aren't hurting. He says in verse 16, outwardly, we are wasting away. It is difficult. It is challenging. Outwardly, we are wasting away. But the inner reality is something different. Verse 16 again. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For verse 17, our light and momentary troubles. And you'd have to say, whoa, <laughs> what do you mean by this? Y you really have severe troubles, Paul. And he's calling them light and momentary. Uh, these things are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So Paul is able to look at these circumstances, these really difficult circumstances, and see a bigger picture. And part of this bigger picture is to see a future secure in Christ because of the gospel. So Paul's lesson to the Corinthians here is 
fix your eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I think if we were able to uh, catch Paul right towards the end of his life in, in house arrest in Rome, and ask him the question, so, so Paul, what are we to make of life? I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I think from all of his writings, uh, the answer would probably be something along the following lines. This life is not all that there is. Remember this as you contemplate life around you, as you contemplate your calling in this world. Because the fact that we can trust in an eternity secure in God helps us to be different people in this world in which he's placed us. It helps us to hang in there, to take the long view. And then lastly, as, as Paul reflects on what it means to, to share this message in a, an unbelieving world, in a world often hostile to the gospel, he says the following in verse 2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, neither do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What is clear from this little snippet, and, and, and this is a theme that Paul takes right through the entire chapter, is the idea that this is not simply a message to believe and then to you know, hold close to our chest saying, mine, all mine. He speaks of a message that has to go out. A word that has to be set forth plainly. Once again, this is not about him. This is not about his glory, but about the glory of God and about a world that desperately needs this message and a truth that must be set forth plainly. So in some ways here, the treasure analogy breaks down a little bit because for most people, a treasure is something that you hoard. Think of Smalls in The Hobbit, you know, lying atop of his, uh, his mountain of gold, and not even a single coin is allowed to go out from that. We're not talking about this kind of treasure. Paul is talking about a treasure that paradoxically increases as it is shared around. And there's enough for everybody to go around. God's grace is infinite. And therefore, we do not hoard this treasure. We set forth the truth plainly as we uh, go out in this world to share this message. So people of one hope, you have been entrusted with this treasure as well. You and me and all of us need to recognize that it is indeed precious. Secondly, that it is not about us and what we can achieve. We are but paper cups, jars of clay, trusting in an infinitely greater power. We need to recognize that this will not always be easy, being on the path of holding on to this treasure. But if we take the long view, knowing that this is not all that there is, we can describe our troubles as light and momentary. And then lastly, it is not a treasure to be hoarded, but to be shared with a world that so desperately needs it. When we hear a message like this, and, and I conclude with this, 
we can so easily say, well, we are just, what, 100, 150, 200 people uh, in this little corner of the world. What can we do? How can we change the world? And the answer to this uh, is just simply to be faithful where we've been placed. And this may not be the most glamorous and the most earth-shattering answer that I can give, but it is an answer that has been proven to be true again and again and again. In the year 2000, I uh, was able to visit the city of Berlin, where uh, from the, the late 50s up until 1989, a wall divided the city, the Berlin Wall, seen by many as the ultimate expression of the so-called Iron Curtain, the idea of a, a deep separation in Europe with communism on one side and uh, capitalism and freedom on the other side. And I can still remember as a child growing up, praying for the countries behind the Iron Curtain. And to me, growing up in the 1980s, it seemed like just one of those facts of life, an unchangeable reality. There is that line going through Europe, symbolized by the Berlin Wall, and thus it will be until I die. This is how the world looks. But that wall doesn't stand anymore. There are only little, little bits of it left. In 1989, the wall, quite literally in some places, came down. How did it happen? Did the Americans fire a, 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 an intercontinental ballistic missile? Did a massive army invade Eastern Europe? No. The revolutions that happened in 1989 are now characterized by two words, people power, ordinary people. And on that wall in, in 2000, as we, we looked at it, a little bit of it that was still standing, the following words was written that I think is a fit epitaph for communism and for East Germany and for the war. It said, many small people who in many small places do many small things can change the face of the world. Many small people who in many small places do many small things can change the face of the world. As people holding the treasure of the gospel, this is who we are. We may not be among the greatest and the, the best among the world. We are but jars of clay, but holding on to the gospel, believing it, living it, through the grace of God and with the message of Christ on our lips, we can change the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of your word. We thank you for the, the many, many truths contained in it, truths that we were barely able to scratch the surface of this morning. But we thank you that what we could focus on uh, is just such a powerful reminder of the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the preciousness of the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to hold on to this in, in the midst of sometimes trying, sometimes difficult circumstances. That you will help us not to hoard this gospel, but, Lord, to share it with the world that so desperately need it. Lord, I pray that these values, these truths will characterize the life of One Hope Church. That you will make this body of believers like a uh, city on a hill, this light 
cannot be hidden. And Lord, that in this corner of the world, they, through your grace, will be changing lives with the gospel, through the gospel, and ultimately the church that hold on to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.